Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day Spooky Season. Welcome to TGI Crime Day. Today's story is one that I have wanted to talk about for a while, but it falls more in the unexplained mystery category rather than true crime, so I decided to save it for spooky season. Well, spooky season is here, so let's get into it. When I first started listening to true crime and mystery podcasts a few years back, this was a story that I heard again and again, and no matter how many times I hear it, I cannot wrap my head around it, I cannot make sense of it. How do nine extremely experienced hikers go on what would have been, yes, a challenging expedition, but should have been something reasonable for them to do, only to end up dead in the strangest way. This mind-boggling case has been talked about for over six decades, and there is still no definitive answer. Whether you're familiar with this case or it's the first time you're hearing about it, let's go back to 1959 and take a look at the Dyatlov Pass incident. Real quick before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that I have merch now. Um, here's what it looks like. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see this. If you're listening audio only, I am wearing the Keep Investigoogling um, crew neck sweatshirt. It's a little magnifying glass that's held by a skeleton hand and it says, Keep Investigoogling. If this is the first episode you have watched or listened to and you have never heard anyone say Investigoogling, that's because it's my own invention. Well, I'm sure other people probably have said it, but that's where I, I, I made it up. I'm not like a real detective or like a journalist, so what I do is internet research. So therefore, Investigoogling. And if you're watching this video, you too are an Investigoogler and I'm sure that you have gone down many a rabbit hole searching for all things unexplained. So. If you feel that connection and you want to have an Investigoogler sweatshirt, this limited edition spooky season Investigoogler design was created by my friend Melanie. Her online shop is called Malligraphy. You can find her shop on Instagram. I will leave all of her links down below and then the link to my um, merch shop as well. So if you want to get yourself a Investigoogler sweatshirt, you can get that. They are limited edition. They will be available until Halloween. Just a heads up, it does take a couple of weeks to get them to you because they are print on demand and then shipped through the company that does the printing. So I don't have anything to do with shipping times. So just make sure if you want one before Halloween, order it soon. Okay, let's get into today's case. In January of 1959, a hiker named Igor Alexevich Dyatlov organized an expedition with nine other experienced hikers. Igor was a radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnal Institute in the Ural region of Russia and organized this trek so that he and the rest of his group could reach a higher hiking certification on the return. So the group was made up of eight men and two women. Most of them were students at the Ural Polytechnical Institute. All of them but one were between the ages of 20 and 24, and one man that was with them was 38 years old. There was an article in The New Yorker that told a little bit about each hiker, and I'm going to read that paragraph for you now. I feel like in this story, the actual people get left out of it a lot, and they just kind of get clumped together as the hikers because it's easier to um, piece together the information that way. But I was really glad to find this information about them as individuals. Also, I'm so sorry. So I'm going to try my best with the pronunciation of these Russian names and try not to completely ruin them, so please be patient with me. I'm sorry in advance. That paragraph from The New Yorker said, quote, Igor Dyatlov was a tinkerer, an inventor, and a devotee of the wilderness. He built radios as a kid and loved camping. When the Soviet Union launched Sputnik in 1957, he constructed a telescope so that he and his friends could watch the satellite travel across the night sky. Dyatlov recruited his classmate, Zina Kolmorgova, and seven other fellow students and recent graduates. They were among the elite of Soviet youth and all highly experienced winter campers and cross-country skiers. One was Dyatlov's close friend, Georgi Krivonoshenko, 
who had graduated from UPI two years before and worked as an engineer at the Mayak nuclear complex. Two other recent graduates were Rustem Slobodin and Nikolai Thiebold Brignolis of French descent. The other students included Yuri Yudin, Yuri Doroshenko, and Alexander Kolotov. The youngest of the group at age 20 was Yudmila Dubinina, an economics major, a track athlete, and an ardent communist who wore her long blonde hair in braids tied with silk ribbons. On a previous wilderness outing, Dubinina had been accidentally shot by a hunter and survived, quite cheerfully it was said, a 50-mile journey back to civilization. A couple of days before the group was to set off, the UPI administration unexpectedly added a new member who was much older than the others and largely unknown to them. Semyon Zolotaryev, a 37-year-old veteran of the Second World War with an old-fashioned mustache, stainless steel crowns on his teeth, and tattoos, end quote. So there you have it. That is our group that is going to be setting off into the freezing cold Russian wilderness. Each of them was certified as a grade 2 hiker with ski tour experience and would receive grade 3 certification when they completed this hike. At the time, this was the highest certification you could get in the Soviet Union, and this was achieved after you hiked 300 kilometers, which is about 190 miles. These are very well-trained and very experienced hikers, and they planned for this expedition extremely carefully. They had to get approval from the Sverdlovsk Committee of Physical Culture and Sport before setting out. Again, I'm sorry for my pronunciations. I'm really giving it my all here. Please don't be mad at me. Okay, here we go. The goal was to reach the top of Oratin Mountain, which is part of the Ural Mountain Range. The plan was to take the 200-mile, two-week journey from January 27th to about February 11th. Igor told his sports club at the university that he would send them a telegram as soon as they were able and that he didn't expect to be back any later than February 12th. The 200-mile route they would take was estimated at Category 3 difficulty, and they took the trip in the coldest, most difficult time of the year. The terrain wasn't exactly challenging. The difficulty was a risk of major snowstorms that would cause low visibility, avalanche warnings, and temperatures that get down below negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Yikes a bikes, that sounds awful. I don't know how people prepare for these types of trips mentally or physically. Before they could begin their hike to the peak, they had to travel 350 miles north of Sverdlovsk to the traditional territory of the indigenous Manzai people. On the early, very chilly morning of January 23, 1959, the group of hikers took a train from Sverdlovsk to the city of Sarov. They traveled by train for a couple of days and arrived in Ivdel. Then they took a bus to Vizhay. From Vizhay, they jumped on a truck that took them to a logging community called District 41. Then they hired a sled to take them another 14 miles to the North 2 mining settlement. By now, it was the 28th of January, and they were finally at the start of their two-week hiking trek. So they already had quite the trek to get there, and then they are going to go out into the wilderness. These hikers were extremely brave and extremely determined to make this trip happen. One of the hikers, Yuri Yudin, decided not to continue on at this point. He suffered from a couple of health conditions, including rheumatism and a congenital heart defect. After being on trains and buses and sleds for a few days, he was having extreme knee and joint pain and decided to head back to civilization. The other nine hikers strapped on their skis and began their trek. Diaries and cameras later found at the campsite have made it possible for us to know what happened over the next couple of days. From January 29th through February 1st, the group seemed to be adjusting nicely to the freezing temperatures and were all in good spirits. On January 31st, they arrived at a wooded area that, from what I've read, seems like the last somewhat flat area before they would have started their journey up the steeper mountainside. And they were more cross-country skiing than actually hiking. They had their skis on pretty much the whole time, from what I've read. Before going up this steeper area, they created a cache of extra food and equipment that would stay there until their return trip back down the mountain. 
this is where things went wrong. That night, the snow picked up worse than it had in the days before, making it really hard to see, almost impossible. It's assumed that because of this, they lost their direction and headed west. The hikers realized they were going in the wrong direction after traveling about a mile and a half. We know that they started their day later than planned after burying the cache. The weather was getting worse, and so rather than hiking the mile and a half back to the route they were supposed to be on, they decided to set up camp on the slope of the mountain. Yuri Yudin, the one who stayed behind later, said he thought, quote, Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope, end quote. This particular mountain they were hiking is called Kolat Siakal which means dead mountain in the language of the indigenous Manzai people of the region. The area where they set up camp was previously unnamed, but is now called Dyatlov Pass. When February 12th came and went, no one was worried right off the bat. Igor said that he would send a telegraph when they got back to civilization, but everyone just assumed that the hiker's journey was taking longer than expected. Like we talked about before, the journey just to the start of their trail was a 350-mile ordeal. However, more and more time went on, and the friends and families of the hikers became really concerned. On February 20th, 1959, a search party went out to see if they could find any clues as to what happened to the group. Many different groups were invested in finding these hikers. Their fellow students at UPI, prison guards from the Ivedale camp, Manzai hunters, and local police set out to find the missing hikers. Eventually, the military sent out helicopters to help in the search. On February 25th, students found ski tracks and followed that trail above the tree line to an area that Soviet officials called Height 1079. This was where they found the camp that the group had set up. Their tent was there. Remnants of a fire were left behind, but there was no sign of the missing hikers. The tent was partially collapsed and buried in the snow. When they uncovered the tent, searchers were shocked to find that it had multiple slash marks in it that they later figured out had come from the inside based on the way that the fibers had been cut. So rather than using the zipper that was right there, there were multiple slash marks that showed that the campers had slashed their way through the tent wall. The inside of the tent was very organized. Their boots were all lined up near the tent's door and food was laid out as if they were about to have dinner. Their axes and other equipment was safely tucked inside along with a stack of wood for heating a stove. Their clothes, camera, and journals were all found in the tent, and the search party found footprints that led them about 100 feet downhill. They could tell that the footprints were made by eight or nine people, and based on the space between the prints, they were able to tell that they were walking and not running toward the tree line. Another strange note about the prints was that they were all barefoot or in socks. First of all, it's weird that they didn't have shoes on, but it's even more strange to me that they were walking. If they had to run out of the tent in an emergency to where they had to slash their way out and didn't have time to put shoes on, that would make sense, but then they would be running. Based on a photo that was found later, the conditions were not looking good the day they set up camp. Snow was blowing around them. It looked miserable. What are they all doing just walking calmly in the absolute frigid temperatures with no shoes on? The searchers continued to follow the prints for six to 700 yards until they vanished into the tree line. On February 27, 1959, they began to find the bodies of the hikers. Again, the website dyatlovepass.com had a very helpful map that showed where each person was found. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, you'll be able to see it. I'll put it up. If not, I'll put a picture on Instagram, or you can take your own deep dive into this case and go through all of the information and maps on dyatlovepass.com. Again, incredibly organized, very detailed website. So thankful I found it. Um... Oh, also, I ended up going through each of the autopsy reports on this site, and one thing that I noticed was that every time I've heard this story, it seems like there was a collective understanding, and let me know if you have heard this story before. Let me know if this was your understanding as well. 
From what I have heard before, most of these hikers were barely wearing any clothes. But according to the autopsy reports and the unfortunate photos that I saw, that doesn't seem to be the case. The part about them not having shoes is correct, but the thing of them, like, some people being found in their underwear, not true. So, if you've heard that, and that's what you thought, because that's what I thought, let me know. I'll get more into that in a little bit. Also, just to let you know, as always on this channel, I do not show crime scene photos. I won't be showing any photos of the bodies. They were in an article that I didn't realize they would be in, and it was very upsetting. So, trigger warning, if you decide to do your own Google, just be careful, be warned. The first two bodies found almost a mile from the camp were Georgi Kravonoshenko and Yuri Doroshenko. They were both barefoot and wearing very little clothing. They were found near a tall cedar that had branches broken up to 16 feet high, suggesting that they had either climbed the tree to try to get away from something, or maybe to find a lookout point to search for the other hikers, but their attempt to go up that tree failed because the branches were not sturdy enough to hold them. There were signs that they had attempted to start a small fire that was also found near their bodies. Later that day, the searchers found the bodies of Igor Dyatlov and Zineda Kalmogorova. They were a bit farther up the slope, and their bodies were found facing the direction of the tent. Both of their hands were clenched into fists, and it's speculated that they were trying to get back to the tent. A few days later, on March 5th, they found a fifth body, the body of Rustem Slobodin. Like some of the others, he was found on the slope leading back to the tent, wearing one sock and one thin felt boot. He also had very little clothing. It took them months to find the four remaining hikers because the weather conditions were so bad, they had to wait until things began to melt before they found the last hikers. In the meantime, autopsies were done on the first five bodies, and to help us all stay organized and on the same page, I will go over each of the autopsies in a moment. After the initial autopsies, a homicide investigation was opened, and the lead detective was a man in his mid-30s named Lev Ivanov. He ordered toxicology reports, gathered witness statements, and had maps and diagrams of the area made. The tent and all other forensic evidence they could gather was flown into the police station and set up there. A couple of months later, once the snow had thawed a bit, a man's eye hunter and his dog came across a makeshift snow den in the woods. The remains of this snow den were described as a floor of branches laid in a deep hole in the snow. Around this area, he found pieces of tattered clothing and a search team was called in and they had to use avalanche probes to excavate the snow den. They found the four remaining hikers' bodies together in a rocky stream bed buried under at least 10 feet of snow. Um, I'm going to be as delicate as possible, but here is your warning. I'm going to be talking about the autopsy reports and how the bodies were found. The medical examiner noted a lot of very odd details. Also, rather than saying the same thing multiple times, along with the specific injuries I'm going to cover for each person, each body was also covered in varying degrees of bumps, scrapes, bruises, cuts, etc. 21-year-old Yuri Doroshenko was described as the tallest and sturdiest of the group. Searchers described his complexion as brown-purple when they found him, and his right cheek was covered in gray foam and he had a gray liquid coming from his mouth. The clothes he was wearing were badly ripped in places, and the sock on his left foot was charred. Yuri's body showed liver mortis spots on the back of his neck, torso, and extremities. And if you didn't know, because I recently learned this, liver mortis spots happen when the blood stops moving through the body and settles. So whatever part of the body has contact with the ground is where that blood is going to settle and create what basically looks like bruises. The liver mortis spots on Yuri's body were inconsistent with the position that his body was found, and this means he was moved after he died. Dietlovepass.com noted, quote, The foamy gray fluid that was found on the right cheek of the deceased started the speculation that before death, someone or something was pressing on his chest cavity. This forceful method was common for interrogation from the NKVD, Stalin's secret police and special forces. 
The cause could also be from a nasty fall from a tree. This aspect was ignored in the final papers and read that the cause of death was hypothermia, end quote. Yuri's fingers and toes had severe frostbite. 23-year-old Georgi Krivonoshenko had blackened fingers and third-degree burns on one of his shins and one foot. There was a chunk of flesh from his right hand found in his mouth. A note on dyatlovpass.com said, quote, The presence of skin between his teeth that was torn from his hand might suggest that Krivonoshenko tried to stay in the cedar tree as long as he could and tried to awaken his irresponsive hands by biting himself, or he was trying to stifle a cry, end quote. As I mentioned before, the cedar tree that they were found under had branches broken up as high as 16 feet. These were thicker branches than it would have been broken if someone were just trying to pull on them. The skin on Yuri and Georgie's hands were torn up and there were tears in their clothing that showed they had tried to get up the tree. I also talked briefly about Yuri's body being moved after death and their bodies were carefully laid next to each other. It's speculated that Yuri and Georgie died first and some of the other members of the group possibly found them. Some of their layers of clothing had been removed or cut off with a knife, and the reality of this freezing cold mountain is that if you are not dressed properly, you will die. These hikers knew that, so it's assumed that they took clothing from their friends' bodies to try to stay alive as long as possible. As I mentioned earlier, every time I've heard this story, people mention that they were all in various stages of undressing, and that makes people assume that it was because they were suffering from hypothermia. In very severe stages of hypothermia, sometimes people go through what is called paradoxical undressing. It's one of those strange things that the brain does where people become confused and sometimes this causes their brain to think that they are overheating and so they remove their clothing. But it doesn't seem like that was the case for these hikers, uh, which I thought was really interesting because again, it's always one big detail of the case. Maybe it's to make it more sensational or even more dramatic. I think it's dramatic enough as it is. But the reality is that most of their clothing was cut off and was later found on the other people's bodies. They were wearing each other's clothing just to have more layers. Very sad and probably a very, very hard decision to make, but again, that is the reality of hiking in these mountains. 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov had injuries mainly to his face and hands. There were a bunch of small cuts and scrapes on his forehead, brow bones, and cheekbones. There was dried blood on his lips, and his hands had bruises on his knuckles. And these are described as injuries that would happen if you were in a hand-to-hand -hand fight. So if you make a fist, the injuries that were on his hand were like along your knuckles where you would use to hit someone. He had scrapes and bruises on his knees and ankles, and Igor had no internal injuries. His cause of death was listed as hypothermia. 22-year-old Zaneda Komlogorova was found wearing a lot more layers than the others. She had two hats, multiple shirts, layers of pants, and three pairs of socks. She also had a military-style protective mask tucked into her sweater. Zenaida also had bruising and abrasions on her hands and face, similar to Igor, and she had a very large bruise on the right side of her torso that looked like it was caused by a baton. Zenaida's cause of death was listed as hypothermia due to a violent accident. 23-year-old Rustem Slobodin had major injuries to his face and head. There were scratches and bruises on his forehead and temples, and swelling with a lot of abrasions on both of his cheeks. He also had those same marks on his hands and knuckles that looked like they were from a fight. Rustam's most notable injury was a skull fracture to the front left side of his skull. It was near his temple up to the top of his skull, and the medical examiner explained that the bruises and scrapes and skull fracture were due to, quote, last-minute agony as a result of hypothermia. People have a hard time believing that because usually if a person is falling down to exhaustion, most of the injuries are to the knees and hands. The skull fracture looks like it was from a blunt object, and Rustam would have to repeatedly fall down in that same place and keep landing on the sides of his face over and over again to get the head injuries that he had. 
As previously mentioned, the final four hikers were found buried beneath 10 feet of snow in a snow den that they had created. Their autopsies note that these four were wearing multiple layers of clothing, some of them belonging to the other members of the group that had passed. And in this snow den, they would have been more protected from the elements and it would have been slightly warmer for them. 20-year-old Yudmila Dabanina was missing soft tissue around her eyes, eyebrows, nose, and one of her cheeks. She had multiple broken ribs and a massive hemorrhage in the right ventricle of her heart. Her eyes, tongue, and top lip were missing. There was no further explanation to the missing tongue, and her autopsy was a lot more vague than the others, especially given that her body was in really bad shape. The autopsy report said, quote, It is noted that the stomach contained about 100 grams of dark brown mucosal mass, often misquoted as coagulated blood. It is used by some as an indication that the heart was beating and the blood was flowing when the tongue was removed from the mouth. This cause of death is stated as hemorrhage into the right atrium of the heart, multiple fractured ribs, and internal bleeding, end quote. Hate that information. I think it's important to go through the autopsy reports, but it's also, like, really difficult for me because I just can't imagine what the final moments of these people's lives were like. As you know, if you have watched or listened to any of my other episodes, I am not good at taking my emotions out of cases, so I can't help but feel really sad and upset for these people. Um, here we go. 37-year-old Semyon Zolotaryov had similar injuries to Ludmila. His ribs were broken in multiple places, he had an open wound on the right side of his head, and his skull was exposed, and his eyes were missing. The autopsy report noted, quote, Both Semyon and Ludmila have interesting patterns of injuries. They are very similar in direction and force despite the difference in shape, height, and body composition of the two. This would suggest that whatever caused these injuries was not a single uniform event, end quote. 24-year-old Alexander Kolotov was also wearing a lot of layers of clothing but no shoes. There were multiple burn marks to his clothing and his wool socks were burned on the bottom. And this is important. The waistband of his sweater and the lower part of his pants later tested radioactive. He had multiple open wounds exposing his skull, his nose cartilage was not necessarily broken, but his nose was flattened and his neck was described as deformed. A note from Dyatlov Pass said, quote, This autopsy had similar strange silence about the injuries of the victim. Broken nose, open wound behind the ear, and deformed neck might be the result of a fight and cause of death. On the other hand, it could have been caused by natural elements since the body was exposed to nature for three whole months. Yet, the doctor ignores this matter and doesn't try to explain the reasons for these strange injuries. We should probably add that the snapped neck and blow behind the ear is a common sign of killing performed by special forces. However, we can't be sure about this since the autopsy report didn't specify any more details about the body. We are left guessing on the nature and origin of these injuries, end quote. Again, I apologize for the pronunciation. This one is difficult for my mouth to say. 23-year-old Nikolai Theobald Brignoli was bundled up and somewhat protected from the freezing weather. It's been suggested that Nikolai and Semyon were possibly outside of the tent when whatever made them run happened because they were wearing much more clothing and they had shoes on. Nikolai had bruising on his upper lip and a hemorrhage in his lower left arm. He suffered a massive skull fracture, and this was a multi-splintered fracture that started at the base of the skull and wrapped up towards his eyebrow. The medical examiner ruled out the possibility of Nikolai falling and landing on a rock. The type of fracture he had would not have happened from the weight of his own body falling and hitting his head. The autopsy report noted that parts of his skull had been driven into his brain, and this is an injury that is more similar to, quote, the result of an impact of an automobile moving at high speed, end quote. Sorry, I know that was a lot of information to process, but I feel like these things are glossed over a lot of time, and I had no idea that some of their injuries were as bad as they were and that distinct. 
Something to note is that none of the bodies had external penetrating wounds. There was a lot more internal damage. Crushed chests, broken ribs, and that massive hemorrhage in Ludmila's heart. Multiple items of clothing found on the bodies in the snow den showed levels of radiation. A radiology expert said that because the bodies had been exposed to running water for months, um, they were found in that stream bed, it is likely that the original radiation levels must have been a lot higher for them to find what they did. Another interesting note is that Semyon was found with a camera around his neck and a notepad and pen clutched in his hand. Absolutely devastating because the melting snow damaged the camera and the film, so there is no way to know what Semyon captured after they fled the camp. There's also an alleged story that when the searchers found the bodies in the snow den, one of the military men who was there uh, was very weird about this notebook. Allegedly, Colonel Orchikov picked up the notepad and was the only one to flip through it before he said, quote, he's written nothing and put it in his pocket. And then the pen and notepad just kind of went away. They weren't turned into evidence or anything. No one else saw if there was anything written in the notepad. Strange. Almost right away, people were very confused about the condition of the hikers' bodies. And many people were outraged at the lack of investigation. On May 29, 1959, the lead detective Lev Ivanov abruptly called an end to the homicide investigation. His explanation was that it was his job to decide whether or not the group had been murdered, and when he ruled out that possibility, his job was done. He said that it wasn't his job to prove what happened to the hikers. Quote, It should be concluded that the cause of the hikers' demise was an overwhelming force which they were not able to overcome. End quote. A very dissatisfying explanation that left everyone with more questions than answers. Many people with loose connections to this incident were fired or threatened to be fired, including the director of UPI and the chairman of its sports club, the local Communist Party secretary, the chairman of two workers' unions, and a union inspector. All the evidence, including journals, photos, and autopsy reports, were classified and blocked from public view. The tent was kept in evidence, but eventually it became so moldy and had to be thrown out. The area where the hikers' bodies were found was off-limits to all skiers and hikers for about four years. And eventually the area of the mountain where they were trying to finish their expedition was named Dyatlov Pass. The families of the hikers were devastated at the loss of their loved ones and very frustrated with the lack of answers. Many of them wrote letters to officials and demanded a more thorough investigation, but nothing more was done. This was closed, and anyone who tried to look more into it either lost their jobs or were punished. Something horrible happened to this group. They were all in very good shape with a lot of knowledge about the mountains and survival in its climate. They were extremely prepared for this trip and what it was supposed to be. They didn't just run out into a blizzard in negative 20-degree weather with no shoes on for no reason. So while, yes... The cause of death very well could have been hypothermia for most of them. Why were they in a situation where they could die from hypothermia knowing what they did about the mountains? All right, now that you have an overview of what the scene and the bodies of the hikers looked like, let's talk theories. Like I said, it's obvious the cause of death was hypothermia, but something made them leave that tent in a hurry and there are many, many explanations, some of them believable, some of them absolutely insane. I'm not going to talk to you about the possibility that it was a Yeti. You can look into all of the different theories for yourself, but I'm just going to talk about the ones that make the most sense and that are talked about the most often. So the first theory that I'm going to briefly touch on, only because it's brought up a lot, but it seems like most people don't really think this is what happened, and that is the theory that there was some kind of violent interaction between the hikers themselves or an attack from escaped prisoners from a nearby prison camp or an attack from the local Manzai people. There are multiple reasons why those things don't make sense. First of all, I've said it 1,000 times, these were extremely experienced hikers. 
They were on a route that had never been done before and it was below freezing. They weren't on some like nice, friendly nature trail where there were dozens of other people out hitting the trails that they could have run into. No prisoners were wandering around in the wilderness and happened to stumble upon these hikers and then engaged in some big violent interaction. If there were escaped prisoners on that mountain, they would not have made it far in the conditions. It's not like they had skis and boots and all of the things that you need to survive in the middle of nowhere. They would have been escaping from a prison camp with very little. So that doesn't make sense. Second, the Manzai are described everywhere that I've seen as very peaceful people. They would have had no reason to harm these hikers. It's also important to note that there are no signs of a struggle and no signs of anyone else in the area of the camp. If this was an attack by people outside of the group, it's likely that there would be boot prints and more evidence of that, but there was none. Also, as far as their injuries go, the types of injuries that they had don't lead to the evidence of an attack by another group of people or a big fight amongst themselves. They had knives, they had axes, they had all kinds of things, and no one was injured in a manner that would suggest that a violent attack happened in that way. There were plenty of things with them in that camp that could have been used as weapons if needed. And as far as the idea that they had this big blow up amongst themselves and all killed each other, I don't like that. It doesn't make sense. Um, again, because there was no sign of a struggle in the tent or anywhere else, and none of their journals suggested anything outside of a lovely, friendly relationship between all of them. Even if there had been somehow one person who, like, went off the rails and became violent, there were nine of them. They could have overpowered one person. I just don't think that that seems very likely. Let me know what you think. In 1990, Lev Ivanov published an article going over the details of a report that he wrote in 1959. He had some ideas of what happened to the hikers, but allegedly was pressured by the USSR to keep it quiet. This article was called, quote, The Enigma of Fireballs, and it shared all of Lev's beliefs that the hikers had been killed by heat rays or balls of fire associated with UFOs. And real quick, that does not necessarily mean aliens. UFOs are any unidentified flying object, meaning a plane or a missile or something along those lines. It doesn't have to be like an alien saucer alien ship. Not that that's not possible. Lev's original report noted strange burn marks on some of the surrounding trees and on some of the hikers' bodies. He said that these scorch marks, quote, confirmed that some kind of a heat ray or a powerful force whose nature is completely unknown, to us at least, acted selectively on specific objects, end quote. One theory as to what could have caused these burns is that maybe they had stumbled into an area where military tests were being performed. If there had been a missile launch that went horribly wrong, this could have forced the hikers from their tent, leading to them dying of hypothermia. To take that theory a step further, people have suggested that they could have been killed by military members who basically went to cover their tracks and make sure that there were no witnesses to what they were doing. The first part of that theory, that there was a weapons test that forced them out of their tents, feels more believable to me than the idea that the military members came through and murdered them. Only because... There were no other sets of footprints or evidence of anyone else in the area besides these hikers. Along with that, it was noted in an autopsy report that some of the wounds they suffered were all internal and with much more force than a human could have inflicted. It also said, quote, These wounds, especially appearing in such a way without any damage to the soft tissue of the chest, are very similar to the type of trauma that results from the shockwave of a bomb, end quote. To support the idea of a weapons test, there were reports of people seeing flashes of light and, quote, balls of fire in that area of the mountain from further away villages, not like up close. And the last photo on Georgie's camera showed a blurry image of flares and bright streaks against a black background. 
There was also another group of hikers camping about 30 miles from the Dyatlov group who said that they saw strange orange orbs floating in the sky around what is now known as Dyatlov Pass, and of course, the fact that some of the bodies and clothing were radioactive. One of the people there to help recover the bodies was a man named Vladimir, and he said that the whole thing felt very rushed and there was an atmosphere of a lot of pressure to get things done quickly and that the higher-ups didn't necessarily care about doing a thorough investigation. He also said that once they had dug all of the bodies out of the snow, they wrapped them very carefully and put them on to special stretchers to help pull them up to the helicopter. Vladimir said that when they got the bodies to the helicopter, the military officials would not let them put the bodies on board, and they said it was because, quote, it was outside of their official duties, end quote. It has been speculated that... This was because the pilots already knew that the bodies were radioactive because they allegedly knew what happened. Vladimir later wrote, quote, We packed them for transportation and there was no reason to refuse to take them. The medical expert refused to examine or to cut their bodies here on site. It is absolutely not dangerous from the point of hygiene. They are folded and covered in special impervious material. The crew said they would not transport them until they were in zinc coffins, end quote. I think there are a lot of people that don't believe the theory of it being a missile test or a weapons test that was covered up by the government because it would be a humongous thing for the government to keep everything quiet. But it was 1959 Soviet Russia and the KGB had their hands in everything. So there are a lot of people who do think that it would be possible for that to have happened and for them to keep it quiet. Multiple people who tried to look into this case were forced into silence or told to recant their statements. Lev Ivanov's superior in the prosecutor general's office was a man named Yevgeny Okashev, and he gave an interview in 2013 where he talked about how suspicious they all were when they were told to test the items recovered from the hikers for radioactivity. He sent a letter to his superior asking if it was really relevant, and the deputy prosecutor general met with them, and he dodged all of their questions about weapons testing and ordered them to tell people that the deaths were accidental and caused by, quote, an extreme force of nature. When the test came back showing that the items were in fact radioactive, the items and the paperwork were all removed by officials from their office without explanation. Okashev said, quote, The victim's parents came into my office. Some screamed and called us fascists for hiding the truth from them. But the case was closed and not on our orders, end quote. As the decades passed, the friends and families of the hikers pushed for another investigation. They had a ton of support because this, again, is a case that is so mind-boggling and frustrating that people outside of the families have been enamored with it since the beginning. A few years ago, the remaining family members of the hikers finally got the case reopened. The thing is, though, when it was reopened, the investigator put in charge was like, shut up with your weird theories and stop saying it was anything other than a natural disaster. He said that the only acceptable answer was that it was one of three things, a hurricane, an avalanche, or a slab of snow sliding over the tent. There were 75 theories put forward, and he dismissed 72 of them, saying, quote, A large class of these 75 versions are conspiracy theories alleging that the authorities were somehow involved in the incident. We have already proved that this is absolutely false. End quote. Have you, though? <laughs> Obviously, I am not a scientist or an avalanche expert, but I do know how to use the internet. So here's what I've learned about the likelihood of an avalanche in this area. First of all, multiple articles said that there has never been an avalanche recorded in this area, not before the Dyatlov Pass incident and not one since. Second, there has to be a buildup of snow to create an avalanche. Pretty straightforward. The area where they put up the tent was insanely windy, and the snow doesn't settle long enough to build up, get heavy, and then cause an avalanche. The chances of an avalanche go up on slopes that have an angle higher than 30 degrees. 
The area around the tent didn't have slopes steep enough to be at high risk for avalanches. From what I've read. Okay, again, don't yell at me. Not an expert. It's just what I've read. In 2020, two Swiss scientists did some studies and research to try to prove that avalanches do happen at Dyalov Pass. They did 3D mappings with drones and used computer software to test different things to see if an avalanche could occur in the area. And I actually remember when this happened in 2020, an article came out that was like, has it finally been solved? And I remember at the time being like, no, it hasn't. And then you look at it and they basically... It said that they used some of the technology that Disney used in the creation of Frozen to create tests of what would happen if there was an avalanche there and, like, why it could happen. It was weird, and I remember everyone being very skeptical when that article came out because <laughs> it just – it's kind of weird. So their argument was that an avalanche could happen, and then because of the high winds, it would blow away the snow and the evidence of an avalanche would be gone. Two avalanche experts who were not involved with this particular study were very skeptical and said that these scientists had shown how one could happen – but it still didn't seem very likely that one did happen. Along with the wind, the slope, and the fact that the Dyatlov group would have known which areas would have been high risk for avalanches, there are other things that disprove the avalanche theory. There was, first of all, no physical evidence of an avalanche. Of course, a couple of weeks had passed by the time the tent was found. However, parts of the tent were still standing, including a ski pole that had been used to hold up the front of the tent. Ski pole versus thousands of pounds of snow. It just doesn't seem likely that the ski pole would have won that fight. There was also no damage to any of the surrounding tree line or any kind of leftover debris that you would see after an avalanche. And if the idea is that the avalanche happened and then the wind came in and swept away all the evidence, how were there very well-preserved footprints from the hikers leaving that area around the tent? Again, I'm not an avalanche expert, but people who are experts of avalanches, seem underwhelmed at the idea that an avalanche was the root cause of what happened at Dyatlov Pass. The director of the U.S. Forest Service's National Avalanche Center said, quote, We believe that the avalanche hypothesis cannot be completely ruled out, but that it is not the most likely scenario. While it may be remotely possible, we would suggest that it would be highly improbable, end quote. So there you have it. An avalanche expert said it, not just an investigoogler. Again, I highly, highly recommend the website dyatlovepass.com. There are dozens of updates and all of the different articles that you can look into with very helpful notes and explanations. I can only share so much here. Otherwise, I would talk to you about the signs of avalanches for four hours, which I would love to do. But look into each theory on your own. Form your own opinion. Keep investigoogling and learning about this case because I only mentioned a few of the most popular theories. And there are dozens more ranging from the unbelievable and strange to the likely scenarios. So let me know what you think is the most likely scenario here. All I know is that whatever happened to these nine hikers was a tragedy. And those of us who are fascinated by the unexplained, of course, want to know what happened here. But most of all, I wish that there were answers for the family and friends of the Dyatlov group. All of these people were young and smart and adventurous, and they lost their lives in a terribly sad way trying to do something incredible. This is already one of history's most confusing mysteries, and I don't know that there will ever be a true and clear-cut answer. I hope that you found this episode interesting, and I hope that maybe you learned something new about the case that you thought you already knew about. Um, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, send me your case suggestions, hometown crime stories. Please send me your ghost stories. I really want to do a future episode reading all of your spooky tales for Halloween time. So you can send all of those things to me at tgicrimeday at gmail.com. Thank you for letting me tell you this story and I will talk to you soon. Stay spooky. Bye.